grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever heard of Galloping Gertie? It's the name of a bridge built in Tacoma, Washington in 1940. It took two years to build it. It was the third longest suspension bridge in the world. But immediately after it was finished, it was discovered that there was some flaw in the engineering and design of the bridge. It got its name, Galloping Gertie, from the way it would move up and down on windy days. On November 7, 1940, the wind speed reached 40 miles an hour. The bridge's movement up and down turned into a twisting motion, which increased dramatically. As spectators watched, the bridge finally began to come apart, and a good portion of the center span fell into the sea. The bridge had only been open for four months. The disciples in our gospel reading may have wondered whether Jesus' ministry was coming apart and about to collapse. When we get to chapter 13 of Matthew, John the Baptist is in prison. The Pharisees, instead of embracing God's Messiah, are plotting to destroy him. They believe the power he has, the miracles he's performing, his talking with demons and casting them out, that all of this is by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Jesus' own mother and brothers have come to try to talk some sense into Jesus. Even they think that he's out of his mind. The crowds that follow Jesus are not following for the right reasons. They're looking for signs, for miracles, for healing, but not to accept Jesus as the king that he is. They're not repenting of their sins and putting their faith in him and they will eventually abandon Jesus. One would expect, of course, that if the Son of God came down to earth and preached the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand, that Jesus, God in the flesh, was here to set things right, that he would be welcomed with open arms, with great fanfare, with a ticker tape parade down Red Sea Boulevard. Instead, the winds of opposition have begun to blow against Jesus, against his message, and even in the case of the scribes and Pharisees, against his miracles. And the winds are blowing harder. You would think that Jesus would be met with huge success. And so, Jesus begins to speak to the people in parables. They have hardened their hearts, against God's word. They refuse to hear. And so the message is veiled. It's still there, but most will not understand. The Holy Spirit will still work faith when and where he wills, and some will come to faith. But the people on the whole have rejected Jesus, and so he speaks in parables. This is the context in which he tells the parable of the sower. Jesus' preaching has not met with success as we would define it. Instead, his ministry has encountered widespread rejection, animosity, and deadly opposition. And Jesus calls his disciples to carry the cross and suffer rejection for the sake of his name until the end of the age. It's interesting, then, that 
in the string of parables that Jesus teaches in the 13th chapter of Matthew. The first is the parable of the sower. Matthew says that Jesus told this parable the same day that his mother and brothers had come to speak with him, to try to talk some sense into him. Jesus said, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus says in this parable, This is why things don't look as you'd expect. God's word is going out. The good news of the kingdom is being preached. Opposition is rising, and it may look like things are unraveling, but God is in control. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, God says in Isaiah. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is accomplishing his work of salvation. His Son goes forth, spreading the word like a sower sows his seed. Paul writes in the first letter to Timothy that God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus looks on the crowds that are rejecting him and he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Like many of Jesus' parables, this one has elements in it that are a little odd. Here we see a sower who seems wasteful with his seed. He's throwing it everywhere, on the hardened path, into the rocks, into the deep weeds. The gospel is preached everywhere. The call to repent and believe in Jesus is broadcast to all, to those in Jerusalem, to the leadership who know the scriptures and who should have welcomed their awaited Messiah but who instead have hardened their hearts against God's grace. The gospel is preached to the entire Roman world, to a world that prefers its cacophony of self-made gods and goddesses to the one true God, who alone will judge men for their sins, and who offers them grace and mercy in his Son who will bear those sins to the cross. That loving word is proclaimed to men who will kill the Christ. It's proclaimed to those who will persecute the church down through the centuries, even today, even to our own society where it seems any religion is to be tolerated except one. The sower sows the seed of the word to all, because the sower would have all men to be saved. But men loved the darkness rather than the light, John says. The word is sown in ears that are deaf, in hearts that are hardened against God. In some it finds brief root, but when tribulation and persecution come, that person abandons the faith and falls away. For others, the cares of the world 
and the love of riches choke out the word. Why do some believe? Who is that good ground? When all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, when no one is righteous, not even one, when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, who is that good ground? Here we might again fall into idolatry. We might try to ascertain just what makes one good ground. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Tell us, Jesus, what makes that good soil? I want to know so that I can work at being good soil. I want you to be able to work in me, to create faith in my heart, to strengthen the faith that is there now. What can I do to make myself good soil? And the answer is, you can't. You can't make yourself the good soil. But God can. He makes you good soil when His Word creates faith in your heart to believe the good news of Jesus, sent to be your Savior from sin. Your faith in Christ is not a testament to your being good soil. Rather, you are good soil because you have faith in Christ. God's power is what creates faith in our hearts. His power working in us through the Holy Spirit who creates faith when and where He wills. And how do we, who have the gift of faith, allow that faith to grow and increase? Through daily contrition and repentance of our sins, by acknowledging daily that Christ has purchased and won me a lost and condemned person from sin, death, and the devil, not with silver or gold, but with his own precious blood, that he sustains and upholds me in the faith by his power alone, through his Holy Spirit, whom he has given me as a gift in my baptism. We are good ground because God's word has taken root, that word of law and gospel, the word that kills and makes alive, driving us through the law to confess and repent of our sins and pouring the sweet balm of the gospel of God's grace on our souls and giving us peace. This parable might serve as a warning for us, not to let the cares of this world or the desire for our own comfort supplant the gospel we have believed, that Jesus Christ came to suffer and die for our sins and rise for our justification. Don't harden your heart today and begin to think you're all right with God, but cling to his word. Gather with the church of God not just once in a while, but every Sunday. Engage in Bible study. Study God's word on your own, but study it together too. Hopefully our Wednesday morning and evening studies will begin meeting again soon, but remember the opportunity to join in the study that is meeting through Zoom on Sunday mornings. Let that active word sink in and take root and produce fruit in your life. Paul describes that fruit in his letter to the Colossians. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, 
if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we see the word of God and his Christ being rejected around us, and it would seem more and more, we can be assured that God is working, that the seed is being sown, that it is producing a harvest for God, and that the kingdom of God stands firm on the cornerstone of Jesus the Christ. Lord, when the precious seed is sown, life-giving grace bestow, that all whose souls the truth receive, its saving power may know. In the name of Jesus, amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.